Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Claire Hubble, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, as Putin announces that China's leader Xi Jinping will be visiting Russia in the new year, we discuss what this meeting means for the conflict in Ukraine. And we reflect on the 100-year anniversary of the birth of the Soviet Union. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 30th of December, Day 310. Today, to discuss the most recent events in Ukraine and around the world, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor Francis Dernley, our Russia correspondent Natalia Vasilieva, and our history correspondent Dan Kapuro. I started by asking Francis for the latest news from Ukraine. Thank you, Claire. It's good to be back, and good morning, afternoon, or evening to our listeners around the world. So, to start, Yesterday was, of course, one of the most significant aerial bombardments of Kyiv and other key Ukrainian cities. And there's been some interesting reaction from that this morning. The Ukrainians, of course, have talked about the consequences of that and have called for more defensive weapons. The Russia's defense ministry has claimed that the strike was a success and disrupted the production and repair of military equipment and the movement of Ukrainian reserve troops. But most interestingly is that these attacks are continuing this morning. I understand that the air raid sirens are sounding in Kyiv as I speak. But Ukraine's air force have said that all 16 of the Russian kamikaze drones launched overnight from the southeast and north of the country have been destroyed by air defences. Now, that can't be independently verified. But if that is true, then that would be an 100% shoot down rate, which is considerably higher than what we've seen in recent weeks and would show an adaptation of the Ukrainian military, which it will, I think, prove very significant in the days, weeks and months ahead and is suggestive that that more high-tech weaponry, defence weaponry that's been offered by the West is starting to have an effect on the effectiveness of these Russian strikes. In other news uh, on the military side, Ukraine is suffering from an enormous need for ammunition and spare parts. That's according to Jens Stoltenberg, who's told the German news agency DPA that 
it's vital that members of the Western Security Alliance do more in Ukraine at this moment. He said that it is in all of our security interests to make sure that Ukraine prevails and that Putin does not win. So again, we'll just speak to some of the challenges that Ukraine is facing at this moment, not only in terms of the defence infrastructure, but also in terms of weaponry that it is calling for at, as it prepares for the counteroffensive and also to respond to renewed uh, Russian bombardments and potential offensives in the new year. Just on that front, a Russian general behind the disastrous attempt to capture Kyiv in the beginning of the war is now uh, taking over the eastern front in the war. He's taking over the fighting in the east of Ukraine. This is, of course, Lieutenant General Yugevny uh, Nikivorov, I've probably butchered the pronunciation of that, for which I apologise, but um, regular listeners will be familiar with him. He was the, as I say, the commander in charge of the uh, it, the attacks around Kiev at the beginning of the war. He's now at least the fourth commander of Russia's Western group of forces since the invasion and was appointed in that role just uh, three months ago. So again, this kind of disruption would, I think, speak, and indeed this is the uh, British military defence analysis of this, would speak to the internal divisions regarding uh, the Russian Ministry of Defence's future conduct of the war. There's been a lot of shifting of plates on this, a lot of figures moved around, and it would speak to there being quite considerable... uh, uncomfortableness, I think, with regard to the direction of travel, which uh, commanders are in role, which generals are in place as they prepare the groundwork for what we believe will be future offences on Kiev and in the uh, eastern regions. So something for us to watch, and no doubt we will in the coming days. And uh, just lastly, uh, this may have been covered earlier in the week, but I wanted to go into a little bit more detail on it, um, if so, which is this remarkable interview um, on British radio between uh, Sir Jeremy Fleming, the head of uh, Britain's spy agency GCHQ, sort of the successor to Bletchley Park on steroids, um, and the head of US intelligence, Avril Haines. And they've done this uh, mutual interview as part of um, Sir Jeremy me uh, editing one of uh, the um, sort of most important radio programs here in the UK, or at least one of the most prestigious. And as part of that, he spoke to um, his counterpart in the US. And one of the big things that's come out of this is talking about the sea change of the release of intelligence as a consequence of the war in Ukraine, how they publicised ahead of time their knowledge of Russia's plans for the invasion. That would not have been typical. That was clearly an attempt to try and divert uh, Putin from the invasion in the first place. But more importantly, he talked about, and, and they talk about this in the interview, how uh, rather than trying to do everything after the effect, and, and, and uh, in, in, at least in the public sphere, they've tried to pre-bunk rather than post-bunk uh, the claims of uh, the Russian military, uh, Russian propaganda about what has been happening in Ukraine. So they have been very, very eager to share Western intelligence. I'm sure not all of it, but uh, nonetheless, share Western intelligence with the media, share it with um, on, on, on public platforms, on social media and through their own um, uh, platforms of course as well about what 
the Russian narratives are saying, what, how they are misleading, uh, the reality of what is going on on the ground in an attempt, as I say, to pre-bunk some of the Russian narratives. Now, they say they've had moderate success in that. But interestingly, they say that within Russia itself, they believe that they have not been as successful as perhaps some expected early on in the war. Indeed, um, the quote is from uh, Avril Haines is that there's been basically no impact on this intelligence sharing within Russia because of the control that the Kremlin exerts over information flows inside the country. So quite a no- noteworthy admission that. And as I say, one that I'm not going to try and challenge, but I would say that we have a lot of listeners in Russia of this podcast. Inevitably, in this interconnected world we now live in, there will be information that's bleeding in. But we haven't seen perhaps the, the scale of the significance of that play out in perhaps the way that, that some expected. So a very interesting interview the one we, that we've written up for The Telegraph, which I'd recommend that people check out. And there have been other news stories off the back of this as well, but a very interesting insight into the shift in intelligence sharing as a consequence of the war in Ukraine. Thank you for that, Francis. Moving away from the military space, what else has happened on the diplomatic front in the last 24 hours? Yes, well, on the diplomatic front, a very interesting intervention this morning from Vladimir Putin. He said that he expects his dear friend, that's a direct quote, and Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping to make a state visit uh, to Russia in the spring, adding that he wants this to be indicative of a ramping up of military cooperation between the two countries. This is as a response to a televised video conference between the two leaders, saying that he wants it to demonstrate to the world the closeness of Russian-Chinese relations. Now, what's been interesting is that uh, Beijing has not commented on this. Perhaps it's an attempt by Putin to play up the cooperation that's happening behind closed doors. This may be a cause of embarrassment in Beijing, or it may be indicative of the reality of the depth of the relationship that's been built between these two countries uh, behind closed doors, uh, one that China has not been keen to promote because of its interests in the West, but is actually the reality of what's going on in the ground. To be perfectly frank, I think that would be my interpretation of what has been going on. Whilst I don't question at all the significance of the dialogue that China has been having with Putin, working together some of the Western allies into those conversations, which may have toned down some of the nuclear rhetoric coming out of Russia. Nonetheless, I do think that there are worrying, concerning trends about how China are cooperating with Russia, more so perhaps than we would have hoped, given the international condemnation of what Russia did back in February. But as I say, I don't think this should be seen as something that's necessarily indicative of Russian strength. Rather, it could be the opposite, that for reasons we've talked about in the past on this podcast, as Russian influence declines in uh, over the Stans, which of course James Kilner is the expert on for us, um, but also in, in Eastern Europe and beyond, there's an opportunity for China to uh, move in in those spaces by perhaps making Russia more dependent on it and more closely aligning with them. So rather than this being seen as Russian strength with this cooperation with China, it could be seen as suggestive of weakness. So an interesting thing for us to, to monitor there. Just a couple of other very quick things. Um, the UK has donated further military aid to help Ukraine clear, clear minefields and unexploded ordnance. This is, we understand, to pre- help prepare Ukraine for the uh, counteroffensives to come in the new year. That, of course, they need to clear the minefields that Russia have laid, and indeed some of their own defence packages um, as a consequence of of, of, of the uh, Russian invasion. 
so quite significant there. I think it is worth, worth underlining just how much of this ordinance there is. Um, very, very significant in Ukraine and one that will take you know, a generation or more to clear in full, well, most likely. Um, this is the, the, the long-term scarring effects on a country of war, on the environment, on the landscape and beyond. Um, so quite an interesting innovation there. And lastly, on the energy front, which of course I've been following for the podcast now, um, really since the war began, um, I've talked about how there's been this G7 price cap. And whilst not not wanting to go into all of the complexities of this now, what's been quite interesting is that Putin has imposed an oil ban on buyers who are complying with this price cap. So an attempt by him to counteract the uh, Western allies' attempt to subvert the energy markets. Now, what's interesting about this is, of course, it does show a robustness and a firmness in, in the economy within Russia, perhaps more so than some expected. But at the same time, this response from Putin is nowhere near as robust as what he was threatening in Russian propaganda and publicly. So perhaps it would be suggestive that things are not quite uh, as stable in, in Russia as he would like to uh, like to suggest and so whilst he may well be trying to impose an oil ban on these buyers, the reality is, is that there will still be a lot of exchanging going on behind closed doors and that attempts to appear more, more uh, strong uh, may actually uh, not, be, uh, not be the case. But nonetheless, um, interesting that he has attempted to counteract this publicly, perhaps more for an internal audience than an external one. But that's lay of the land in the diplomatic and energy space. Thank you, Francis. Natalia, this seems like a good time to bring you in. How is China's stance on the war viewed within Russia? Hi, everyone. Yes, I just wanted to jump in and add a few words on what Francis has just said, especially on the fact that we haven't seen that China's support of Russia has come short of expectations, definitely in in Russia. And uh, uh, if we look back to early this year, to the end of last year, while Kremlin officials were essentially threatening with the global conflict, they kept telling the Russian public that they shouldn't worry, that in case there are Western sanctions, China will come to Russia's rescue with its technology, with loans. Military aid was not mentioned as such, but there was an idea that China might be helpful. In reality, when the war started and when Russia was immediately slapped with a variety of international sanctions, China did nothing to oppose them. And in fact, it has been as cautious complying with them as any European country pretty much. And among Russian hardline, hard, hardliners, there has been uh, quite significant disappointment and resentment about China, who has, as many saw, who has been egging on on Russia to take on the United States, to take on the West. And when it did happen, uh, China did nothing to help out. So there's, um, I was just... Um, looking around what uh, Russians were saying on social media and what pro-Kremlin pundits have been saying. Again, if you look at uh, the readout from Putin and Xi Kool today, it's it's all very... Uh, the wording from the Chinese side, especially, it's all very neutral. I mean, China says that it's ready to co cooperate in Russia, but what does it mean in reality? We haven't seen any substantial help. We haven't seen any pledges of loans aid or technology cooperation. For example, Russia is really struggling, as we know, to source some of the high-tech uh, imports that would be crucial for its military sectors, a sector such as microchips. And uh, just a very interesting thing that I read on the Telegram channel of Sergei Markov, a former lawmaker who often channels uh, Kremlin narratives in, in a very direct way. 
So what he said is that, you know, he just basically came, came up with a shopping list of what Russia would like to see from China, including military help. And he said words don't no longer carry much weight. And that's, that's quite a widespread opinion right now. And obviously, Vladimir Putin, when he said at the top of this meeting that he's inviting Xi to visit, that he, in fact, expects him to visit in, in, in spring. We don't know if that's going to happen or not. But obviously, he's trying to sell it to the Russian public as a sign that Russia is not on international isolation, as the West claims. And that obviously, if Xi does come and visit, it would be a huge boost for him and a huge sign of um, China's solidarity for Russia. Mm, Interesting. Thank you for that, Natalia. I'd like to come back to a story that we did touch on briefly yesterday on the Ukrainian missile which landed in Belarus. Natalia, what else do we know about this incident? Sure. Essentially, this is the first time that we saw the Ukrainian war spill over into Belarus, which is quite astonishing because we are nearing the 11th month of this conflict. And as we know, Belarus served as a launchpad for invasion, including an assault on Kiev. But uh, Belarus as such has not seen any hostilities. There has been not a single incident attributed to, to the war. And just yesterday, um, as Russia was launching its missiles on Ukraine, one missile appears to have landed in a field uh, in rural Belarus in the west of the country. And... Um, Ukraine has, in fact, uh, claimed responsibility. A Ukrainian spokesman, military spokesman, said this morning that the incident was, quote, the result of air defense. And uh, Belarus is making quite a big deal out of it. They summoned the Ukrainian ambassador, describing the incident as, quote, very serious and asking Kiev to take measures not to to make sure those incidents don't happen again. Again, this 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 one anti-air um, uh, defense S-300 rocket uh, did not cause any damage or any casualties. But again, it's a spillover a conflict that has been raging in Ukraine for 11 months. And, and obviously, it was only a matter of time before we saw incidents like that on the Belarusian side of the border, just like we saw stray missiles landing in um, Southern Ukraine, Southern Russia, for example. Thank you again, Natalia. Today marks 100 years since the birth of the Soviet Union on December the 30th, 1922. Daniel, if I can come to you first, could you give us an outline of the key moments from the Union's history that we should know about? Sure, absolutely. I think uh, maybe some of our readers, certainly not those in, in, in Eastern Europe, but maybe here in the UK and in the US might be sort of surprised to hear that it's the 100th anniversary of the foundation of the USSR, because of course, the much more famous date is the October Revolution five, five years earlier in 1917. But what's often missed from, from the kind of the story of the Soviet Union is actually those first five years or the five years preceding its foundation, which are really essential to explain why the Soviet Union ended up looking the way it did, but also what happened afterwards in the 90s and subsequently, and really helps us kind of understand where we are today. So, you know, very brief recap, but people will know there was there was the revolution which overthrew uh, the Romanovs and the Tsar in Russia. Uh, subsequently, they stayed in the war, but that went disastrously wrong. And you had the October Revolution in which the Bolsheviks came to power. Russia was then plunged into a civil war between the whites and the reds, so monarchists and, and, and communists to, to simplify heavily. But what's sort of also forgotten in the West is that this period of, of uh, 
1917 to about 1923. It was incredibly tumultuous. And, and there's a historian, Robert uh, Gerath, who's written a book called The Vanquished, um, Why the First World War Failed to End, which looks at this period. And, you know, we sort of think First World War, 1914, 1918, done and dusted, empires collapsed, fine. But actually there was a huge amount of violence coups, counter-coups and so on that was going on in Central and Eastern Europe and, and Asia as well that followed the First World War that we, so we often forget in the West. And of course, the key, the key area where this was happening was in what had been the Russian Empire. And so all over the, the uh, former Russian Empire, just as you had in, in uh, 1989 and then 1990, 1991, uh, you had all these colonies effectively breaking away. You know, the main areas being so the Baltics, uh, Poland, Belarus, Ukraine, and then the Caucasus was another big area. And in Central Asia, although there wasn't a sort of declaration of independence, there was a huge uprising by the local population, which was sort of Islamic in its nature, but again was anti-colonialist, anti-Russian. Um, now, the interesting thing is you, you look at the Bolsheviks when they took over and you think, well, you know, it's all sort of revolution and, and workers' rights and all this kind of stuff. Well, why did they then go on to crush and conquer so many of these uh, nations that declared independence, often for the first time, not always successfully. Obviously, most famously, Poland and the Baltics held them off. Um, why did they do that? And there's a few, obviously, it's still a reasonably live debate uh, among historians, but there's a couple of, of reasons, really. One is the sort of the one that maybe the Soviet Union would have liked to have told, and at least is, is the version that, that Lenin promoted, which is this idea of world revolution. So you had the uh, Polish-Soviet war and the miracle of the Vistula when, when the Polish forces held back the Red Army. And the objective there wasn't so much to take Poland back into the Russian Empire as it was, as it was to reach Germany, which had always been seen as the most likely candidate for a communist revolution. And, and Lenin thought that if he could get to Berlin, uh, instigate a communist revolution, then the world revolution would happen and, and the whole world would, would become communist and it would be the end of capitalism. So there was that element of it. And you saw it in some places like... Um, in Georgia, for example, where the Mensheviks had actually been the ones to take over, not, not the Bolsheviks. So there was, to an extent, an element of we want the Bolsheviks to win. You did see that in a lot of places. But then also, um, there really was just old-fashioned Russian imperialism. And perhaps unsurprisingly, you see that, you see the kind of the zealotry of converts in this. So Stalin was a Russified Georgian. You know, Lenin himself was not, not a big fan of, of, uh, of Russianized uh, minorities from the Russian Empire. He was, to an extent, pro-autonomy, which Stalin was not. Stalin was very much um, anti-ethnic minorities, as we saw later on. And so Stalin really pushed for a lot of these invasions, the invasions of the Caucasus, to to force Georgia back into what was the Russian Empire. But as Anne Applebaum, the historian, has pointed out, we often see 1917, 1918 as a new beginning and you know this complete rupture with the past and the new Soviet system, the Soviet man. But of course, the people creating it were born and raised and, and brought up in the Russian Empire. And so a lot of them had been inculcated in this, this deep uh, colonialist disdain for minorities and for the ethnicities that made up the Russian Empire. So they had these deeply, effectively racist views about Ukrainians. Those were there from the start. And so it wasn't really a surprise when they chose to pursue uh, this, this policy of, of forced reintegration and... and um, and the crushing of of uh, the nationalities. So as I was saying, you know, this happened in a lot of places. So you had the invasion of Georgia, um, Armenia, um, Azerbaijan, and the Caucasus. You had the sort of really brutal, violent crushing of the 
uh, Islamic uprising in the Central Asian states, which again had you know nothing to do with with Bolshevism really. It was just about colonialism. It was unsuccessful in the Baltics and unsuccessful in Poland. But then you had the the, the two cases which are interesting, which are Belarus and obviously for us on on the podcast is Ukraine. So um, after the initial revolution in in Petrograd, modern-day St. Petersburg, and the provisional government was set up in in Russia. You had the same thing in Ukraine, and there there were links between uh, the two governments. The Ukrainians hadn't formally declared independence. But later, after the October Revolution, what you effectively had was a Ukrainian People's Republic, sometimes goes by other names, but it's usually known as the Ukrainian People's Republic. And then you had the Ukrainian um, Soviet Republic, which uh, set up its capital in Kharkiv in the east and you had these sort of two competing these two competing Ukraines and the Ukrainian People's Republic the non-Soviet one didn't do particularly well in in fighting against uh, the Red Army and the Bolsheviks who obviously wanted to conquer Ukraine and, and bring it under Bolshevik control uh, and they turned first to the Germans who were who were still in the First World War at this point they ended up conceding a lot of sovereignty to the Germans, and they pushed back the Red Army and they pushed into, into Russia. But then, of course, the Western Front collapsed, the German Empire collapsed, the Germans withdrew, and the Ukrainians were left again at the mercy of the Red Army. Uh, at this point, they turned to the Poles, uh, who they had actually just fought um, a war against over, over Galicia, Galicia, Eastern Galicia, which they, they handed over to the Poles. They sort of gave up their, their claims on sovereignty on it for their backing. But again, uh, the Poles, having sort of won their own war against the Soviets, a negotiated peace and Ukraine was was left on its own and was was crushed by the Red Army and this kind of brief flowering of, of Ukrainian independence was ended. Um, and it's very similar, very similar situation in Belarus, um, although that uh, independent form of Belarus never had quite so much territorial control. And then you see, so why why sort of 1922 matters and, and the creation of the Soviet Union once you'd had this. Uh, this crushing of of the uh, independence movements all over the former Russian Empire, and obviously concurrent to this, you've got the Russian Civil War going on and the interventions of of Western powers. Once the war was petering out and it was clear that the Bolsheviks would remain in power, you had this great debate about how to set the nation that would follow. Um, <clears throat> obviously, there was the desire, at least, to pay lip service to the, the anti-imperialism of communism, even if they sort of proved that to be nonsense by by crushing all these independence movements but there was a desire to pay lip service to it and it also comes at a crucial period where Lenin is becoming ill he'd obviously die in, in 1924 but he was becoming ill and unwell he had strokes and Stalin had really kind of pulled all this power around himself quietly sort of surreptitiously pulled all this bureaucratic power and the two men had very differing views of how the Soviet Union should be formed so so Lenin maybe idealistically maybe not uh, depends on, on your view of him, seemed to, to genuinely believe in a collection of autonomous states that uh, Ukraine, Belarus, Georgia and the like should not be integrated into Russia, but should be part of a union of Soviets. And then you had Stalin who wanted exactly the opposite, who wanted to force them into the Russian Federation, which would still be communist, but it would be Russia. It would not be a union of Soviets. And, and to an extent, uh, Stalin sort of outmaneuvered Lenin, Basically, had him. You know, he was stuck in his on his deathbed, effectively, and, and not able to uh, manipulate things to his own ends. So, to an extent, he was outmaneuvered by by uh, Stalin. But the end result was something of a compromise, which is why, as as uh, listeners are probably already aware, the Soviet Union was the Soviet Union. It was this collection. Obviously, Russia claimed to be a federation within, but then the Soviet Union itself claimed to be. Um, a, a federation with with autonomous states. Now, to an extent, this was obviously nonsense. You know, these these countries had been 
forced under the the Russian and the Bolshevik yoke. The Ukrainian politically had no say in the outlook here, although obviously Ukrainian members of the Bolshevik party had a little bit more influence. But even if the... Um, even if the the outward structure was one of of uh, autonomy and federalism, the reality was an incredibly centralised uh, state with lots of central bodies. And so, on on the face of it, at least in the short run, it appeared as if Stalin had won. Because Serhiy Plokhi, the the Ukrainian historian, makes this very good point that the structure of the Soviet Union effectively allowed it allowed two things. One, it allowed Russian national identity to continue independent of the Soviet Union and what was going on around it. And then separately, to an extent, to a smaller extent, but to an extent, it allowed Ukrainian, Belarusian and other nationalities to to uh, continue to exist. So the, the Ukrainian uh, Communist Party was quite important for a long time. I think we talked about it previously on the on the podcast about how they had sort of their autonomy to an extent within the Communist Party, not so much as Ukraine. But Serhiy Plokhi sort of calls it the, um, he says, uh, almost by default, uh, Lenin became the father of the modern Russian nation, while the Soviet Union became its cradle, which was this idea, you know, this idea that, that uh, the Russian Soviet meant that there were Russian institutions. It meant that in 1989, 1990, when Yeltsin came along, there were Russian institutions that he could use in some sense still of, of Russian identity that was separate from the Soviet Union. Um, now, which also obviously brings us up to a very interesting question now. And certainly, I think you can see that in Putin's mentality and the launching of the war. The point's very often made that he can't afford to have a successful, democratic, uh, westernizing, Europeanizing nation on his borders because it will show up what his kleptocracy has become. But I think there's another interesting question, which would be fascinating to hear what Natalia has to think about this as well. But for a long time under Putin and and in sort of the post-Soviet world, Russian identity and and maybe before the Soviet Union as well was wrapped up in this idea of of, uh, the Orthodox Church and the Russian language. You know, we talked about this previous podcast about the idea of the Third Rome and Moscow being sort of the heart of Pan-Slavism and being responsible for all Orthodox Christians. Now, if Ukraine is able to thrive with a large Russian-speaking population and a large uh, Orthodox population, and it can show that uh, you can be Russian-speaking and Orthodox and not Russian and be incredibly successful and democratic and and happy, uh, what does that mean for Russian national identity if, you know, these, in theory, sort of unifying uh, national institutions are not exclusive to Russia? What what does it mean for for Russia to have a state? And I think that's kind of this this thread, this question that that runs through from 1922 to today. Uh, It's so interesting hearing... Daniel's perspective on this. I mean, I, I've, I've got a few reflections based on what he was just saying and also just generally about the Soviet Union and its significance, not only in the 20th century, but of course now into the 21st. I think it's important to emphasise that for right or wrong, uh, people, listeners will know my view, uh, the Soviet Union is the most significant political edifice of the previous century. Uh, but it, I think it's important to emphasise that it is littered with misunderstandings and paradoxes. I remember that the observation of the historian, Marxist historian, it has to be said, Eric Hobsbawm, who said that um, there's an irony here that the the, the Soviet Union proved to be the saviour of liberal capitalism in many ways, both by enabling the West to win the Second World War against Hitler's Germany, um, but also by providing incentives for capitalism to reform itself in competition with the Soviet alternative and to buy the 
perceived, and I emphasize that word perceived immunity to the Great Depression in 1929, it meant that capitalism, as I say, was forced to abandon its belief in free market orthodoxy and to evolve into something that made the FDR's stance on solving the Great Depression possible, one could say. So that is, uh, I think, an unintended consequence of of the Soviet Union's role in in history is this uh, sort of intellectual role and and, and an economic one. But I say perceived there because I think that it's really, really important to poke some holes in some of the understandings about the Soviet Union in the 20th century. I remember that Stalin said something like, and so I'm paraphrasing here, that he found Russia with a wooden plough and left it with the atomic bomb as a consequence of his five-year plans and of socialist ideology. But I think it's I think this is misleading. Um, It's true, of course, to an extent, um, but I think it's really important to stress that, yes, whilst the Soviet Union did produce record economic figures under communism, it's not the full story. Part of this success was due to the injection of capitalist methods through necessity in the 1920s like wage differentials, which of course goes completely against uh, Marxist orthodoxy. It also is a result of the exaggeration of production figures by factory managers who feared retribution from above if they didn't deliver on these uh, gargantuan uh, orders from on high. Um, In a similar vein, it's often said that the Soviets had a pioneering view of women's rights, but actually in many ways that again was born of necessity rather than as a consequence of this real ideological uh, progressive underpinning. It was an attempt in the desperate uh, economic plight of the 1920s and 30s to bring more people into the factories to try and churn out the the, the kind of figures that they believed would be required if there were to be economic or, or literal warfare against uh, the Western powers. But fundamentally, as I say, I think the economic achievements seem much more modest when one were to, you know, posit the idea that what if capitalism had actually been able to be properly fired in the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 1930s. Yes, it achieved much through the modernising practices of socialism, but it, capitalism proper was never given a chance with the collapse of the of the Tsarist regime. If it had, who knows, maybe we would have seen astronomically high economic achievements in, in, uh, in, in Russia uh, as a consequence of, of, of capitalist injection. But we never saw that. So yes, the socialism may have made strides forward in the economic realm and many people may have been lifted out of poverty. But that's not necessarily a success of socialism. Rather, it's a success of a system that was breaking away from the autocratic model of the czarist regime that was old-fashioned in many ways and lacking in innovation. Um, but if capitalism un- unblemished had been able to be unleashed there, then I think we may well have seen achievements that equaled the five-year plans and, and and beyond without the bloodshed. And I think that's the next thing that I was going to say is that there's often a mythos that's built around the Soviet Union that, um, and this was the Trotskyite view in the 20th century, that Lenin had this sort of purist um, ideology that was um, liberational, that was unifying and was not built on terror, that the terror came later um, and that Stalin was the, the corrupter of the great Um, ideological purity of Leninism but actually that is simply not true um, for the reasons that Dan was just talking about there. Um, The fact is is that that Leninist terror was the underpinning of the Soviet Union from the very beginning and I can just cite one example relating to Ukraine in November 
1920. The Red Army's cavalry swept through the Jewish communities in Ukrainian towns. They killed and looted as they went. Now, the myth used to be that Lenin would have had no knowledge of this. Um, but actually, we know now, as a, as a consequence of the collapse of the Soviet Union, that Lenin himself was personally informed uh, that this was taking place, that the pogroms were happening in Minsk and elsewhere. Um, and the sole comment from him that we have written on the report is for the archives. You know, no attempt to stop it, no attempt to acknowledge it publicly, rather to just say, you know, send it away um, to be buried in the archives forevermore. And it's really important to emphasize that by the end of the Russian Civil War, the pogroms in southern Russia and Ukraine had claimed up to 120,000 lives. I mean, this is just astronomically high figures. And so... That's one aspect of, I think, Lenin's contribution to the Soviet Union, which is misunderstood. Another is, of course, is just the nature of the fact that it didn't really adapt, that even under Stalinism and beyond, the edifice of the Soviet Union was still recognisably very much Lenin's creation. And we, we see that not only with state terror, we see it fundamentally with the centralisation of power. And it's that same centralisation of power where he was managed to sort of, as I'm, and I'm quoting Tony Yutt here, sort of kidnap this centrifugal political heritage of European radicalism and channel it into a monopolised system of control. That legacy not only meant that when the Soviet Union collapsed, it was always going to have to collapse from the centre, and which is, of course, what happened for reasons I've talked about in the past, when you've got Gorbachev there who tried to reform the system from the centre, which wasn't really possible because of the legacy of Leninism. And when he sought to do so, the whole thing collapsed. But it's also very relevant to now when we look to Putin's Russia, because Putin's Russia still lives on with this centralised legacy that Lenin built and the Soviet Union essentially uh, remained unchanged with for, for much of the 20th century. And the consequence of that, of course, is that with state power so centralised, uh, it means that it makes it much easier for leaders like, like Putin to um, control the media, to control the economy, to control all the things that we've spoken about at length. And I think that's a direct consequence of, of the Soviet, Soviet Union's heritage. It's also, of course, very relevant as well to how uh, we've already talked at length in the past about how Putin sees the legacy of the Soviet Union, sees its collapse as the great tragedy of the 20th century. And so he's able to use this historical memory, um, not only of the prestige that Russia formerly used to have and its influence, but also you know, and underlining the fact that when the Soviet Union did implode, it was disastrous for many Russians. This was a trauma, a national trauma, not only with its loss of prestige, but because of the economic consequences of this for, for many, many millions of Russians. And so you've got this very, very complicated legacy of the Soviet Union, but one that is extremely important for understanding not only the 20th century history, but also modern Russia. But of course, I'm, I'm sure that Natalia will have a lot of thoughts on that. So over to you, Natalia. Um, I also just wanted to ask what your experiences were and thoughts about the Soviet Union growing up. Oh, that's, um, I mean, that, there's a lot of unpacking. First off, I just wanted to respond to uh, Daniel's comment about Putin's idea of Russia as a third Rome and the fact that Ukraine is another Christian Orthodox nation and that it has Russian speakers. And what if it could become like a second, uh, whatever, second new, better Russia? That's an idea that did circulate 
in Ukraine and in Russia before the war. I think we can safely say that uh, it's absolutely dead because the Russian invasion has been so traumatic that a lot of Ukrainians, some of the people I know personally, they uh, they would be Russian speakers, they would be from Russian-speaking regions, but they intentionally stopped to speak Russian. They switched to Ukrainian. Like if you look at their social media accounts or you know, if you talk to them, it's like we're no longer speaking Russian because everything about this country is so triggering and so awful, obviously after all of the traumatic events that this country has, has gone through. So obviously, yes, Ukraine is, um, is building itself as an, as an anti-Russia, as something that represents the things that uh, Putin despises, such as democracy or a, a country built on its communities rather than on a vertical of power, as, as, as Putin called it. Um, on the Soviet Union, I mean, uh, I mean, yes, I was I was born in uh, 1984, actually, and I was seven when the Soviet Union collapsed. And uh, as uh, luck would have it, I uh, went to school just a couple of months before the Soviet Union was collapsing, and it was around the time when I I was in the first grade, and it was a time then you were still supposed to wear school uniform, like the Soviet style school uniform. And at the end of the first storm, that country collapsed, and um, it's like you no longer had to wear it, and you just like you 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 started to look very different, and like your school pictures, you know, you would look like any Western student. And before that, you had the Soviet era about you. Uh, I mean, it's it's a very complicated discussion, and I'm sure we don't have enough time for that. What I would like to say is. Uh, of course, I completely agree with Francis on his point that uh, Putin is uh, building his legacy on the Lenin legacy, on the legacy of the Soviet Empire. But uh, speaking about Russian leadership now, they appear to be espousing such a toxic hodgepodge of ideas with mutually contradictory things. For example, Putin is full of admiration for the Soviet Union as a great superpower, as a superpower with uh, an atomic bomb uh, as a superpower, which was one of the countries that defeated Nazism. But he's also scathingly critical of Lenin as a revolutionary leader, as someone who toppled a legitimate gov- government. Uh, at the same time, Putin is full of admiration for the Russian Empire. So it's, I mean, he's not someone who's ideologically driven. And that's why we're talking about the, the um, foundation of the Soviet Union now. It's not a holiday. I mean, it used to be a holiday in Soviet times. Russians don't, don't mark it anymore. And with all of the things that changed this year, obviously, you know, Putin is set to uh, uh, try and instill whatever, however he can, some sort of ideology in, in Russians to, you know, to say that, there are Russian speakers in Ukraine. We have to protect them. Uh, Russia is doing a, a good thing. But there's no attempt to, to put up the Soviet Union as a paragon, as something to strive. So that's why this day, uh, th- that's why today, the day of the foundation of the Soviet Union has uh, passed largely unnoticed in Russia. It's not something that people mark or celebrate. You know, m- m- most of the time people are completely unaware of it. Thank you, Natalia. I'd like to come to our final thoughts. I'll start with you, Francis. What would you like to leave our listeners with? 
Well, I just wanted to touch on a story that we've had come in in the last sort of couple of hours or so, which I haven't had a chance to read the original source material, but I hope to later today. And this is an interesting insight into the new Labour government of the 90s and early noughties here in Britain. Sir Tony Blair, of course, um, as he is now, was Prime Minister at the time. And what's been, we have periodically, we have papers that are released by the National Archives. And so we understand a little bit more every 20, 30 years, depending on when the documents uh, were timed based on their release. Um, we learn more about the kind of memos, the kind of conversations that are happening behind closed doors. Sometimes they're absolutely revelatory from a historian's perspective. Other times they're more, um, well, less so, <laughs> they're more mundane. But this is an interesting one. So we understand that Tony Blair argued that Putin should be given a seat at the international top table, despite deep misgivings amongst officials at the time about the new Russian president. So these files talk about how he believed as prime minister that that Putin was at heart a Russian patriot and that it was important to have him at the top table in order to encourage him to adopt Western values. And it talks about how behind the scenes there were officials who still feared that he represented a return to old Cold War Soviet Union attitudes. Very interesting based on what we were just talking about there and questioned whether he could be trusted. But it seems that Tony Blair was convinced after having meetings with him that Putin was somebody who could be trusted. And indeed, I went to an event a couple of weeks ago by Alistair Campbell, who was uh, Tony Blair's uh, director of comms, uh, quite a controversial one, it has to be said. But he said the same, that, that Tony Blair really did believe that, that, that Putin was somebody who could be, uh, that could be trusted. And evidently, I think it's fair to say now that either one of two things has occurred. Either back then he could be trusted that he was in a different position ideologically and politically. And as a consequence of perhaps mistakes by the West, changes in Russia, that his perspective has fundamentally changed in a harmful way uh, in, in recent decades, the longer that he has been in power, that there was an opportunity lost shall we say. Um, but the other is, of course, is that Putin had managed to pull the wall over the eyes of the Western world for a long period of time and that he was building up power, building up capital, building up strength in order to be able to rebuild aspects of the Soviet Union that were available to him. And indeed, that's what we would be seeing in Ukraine if that view were true. I'm not going to attempt to posit one uh, argument or the other now. I'm sure listeners will be able to guess my own view. But nonetheless, I think it's, it's, it's not just Tony Blair here that, that, that I think this speaks to. I think it's a general naivety amongst Western leaders uh, around Putin for a sustained period of time, uh, not only in, in the 1990s and early noughties, but of course that we've talked about at length in, in the immediate lead up to the invasion of Ukraine. Many, many European leaders did not believe that Putin would do this. They thought it went against their understanding of Putin's ideology and his belief system. And so, uh, you know, it, there's, there's been clear misunderstandings, failures of intelligence, whoever you want to articulate it, uh, around Putin. And I would just end that we talked about China earlier on. And I think there's this perhaps potentially a similar naivety going on around China. You hear almost all the time dialogue around China being articulated around this idea that, well, you know, they're too pragmatic, too nonsensical, that Xi has all of these um, attributes that Putin was once said to have had, an essential pragmatism. And yet, and yet, you, you read about these closing of, uh, closening of ties between Russia and China. And I wonder, just wonder whether historians in, in the long term will say perhaps we may have made the same mistake, but perhaps a, a topic for another day. Thank you for that, Francis. Over to you, Dan.
Just a couple of quick uh, final thoughts, very, very quickly to follow up just on what Francis was saying. I was, uh, I was the one in the archives uh, poring over those documents down in, in queue. So just a little bit of insight on that. I mean, I think Francis summed it up quite, quite neatly, but I think there was one set of documents that was particularly interesting, which was from the British summaries of the first ever NATO-Russia Council summit, which was this body that was being set up in the wake of the Cold War with the belief that, you know, Russia needed to be integrated into the West. This was in 2002. And, and there's two sort of really important bits of context. So, so Blair was at the at one extreme of the, we should let Putin, you know, treat, put, put Putin on the top table, treat him like another leader. Not quite as extreme as Berlusconi, but he was at that end. And it was controversial at the time. The French were against it because, you know, you're only one year out from the obliteration of, of Grozny during the... Uh, during the Chechen war, which was, you know, truly awful. And in that period, people thought, oh, Putin is just another one of these uh, nasty Russian leaders. He wasn't seen as as a um, as a liberal and a reformer, really. But what changed by 2002 was, of course, the September the 11th terrorist attacks. And you can see that in these in these Rome summit documents. Uh, you can see this anxiety from George Bush in particular, who who I think was less naive about Putin maybe than than Blair was. But there's this wonderful line in there. I'll paraphrase it because I don't have the exact quote. But that basically said, you know, we need to move on from old issues and focus on new ones. And he was basically explicitly saying, yes, we've got to talk about nuclear weapons, disarmament and, and controls and stuff at this summit. But really what I want to get on and talk about is how we can uh, counter terrorism and how we can work together on special forces operations and, you know, how we can get Russia involved in that. And it was this belief for the sort of, you know, pretty much until this this war really early this year that, you know, actually we were in the in the period of the war on terror and that great power struggles weren't relevant anymore. And you can see that. You can see that in in these documents, that kind of the zeitgeist, if you like, that they thought, well, we shouldn't be worrying about nuclear weapons anymore. Yes, we'll keep an eye on them, but let's get on with uh, taking out these terrorists. And of course, China and Russia over the last few years have, have proven that to be deeply misguided. But just the, the my real final thought, if you like, and, and this is coming off what we were saying earlier about the Soviet Union and, and off some of what Natalia was saying, which is that, you know, Natalia used an, an important phrase, which is the uh, the Soviet empire. And I think that's forgotten, is that the Soviet Union was an em- Russia was an empire. And lots of Russia today is, is a remnant of that empire. It actually is, despite what Putin sort of portrays to the West, an incredibly diverse country with lots of ethnic groups, many, many Muslims, indigenous people in Siberia. And I think you can only understand the Ukraine-Russia relationship if you understand the colonial element. It's not the same as the Czech-Slovak relationship or perhaps the Spain-Catalonia relationship. It's not one of, one of those of, you know, two groups of people who, who at various periods, you know, were in the same state. It wasn't the Norwegian-Swedish Union. It was a colonial relationship in which Ukraine was conquered and southern Ukraine and, and Crimea, as we've discussed on a previous uh, podcast. And unless you can understand that context, uh, I think you miss entirely what's happening right now in Ukraine. Thank you, Daniel. And finally, over to you, Natalia. Thanks for this. Obviously, fascinating discussion on, on, on the Soviet Union. I would like to speak more about it, but obviously we're running out of time. So we're just um, one day away from New Year's Eve, which is the major holiday in both Russia and Ukraine. And we're moving full into the holiday season with the um, Orthodox Christmas, just one week away. Typically, it's a very quiet time in, in this part of the world, in, in Russia and Ukraine, when nothing is happening. This year, however, Ukrainians are 
quite anxious because there's an expectation that Russia would double down on this missile strike to further intimidate and, and scare Ukrainians in the middle of this holiday season. So obviously, I would very much hope that this doesn't happen, but uh, we should all definitely watch out and, and, and see what's happening in Ukraine, um, especially what concerns Russian missile strike, because, you know, this is going to be very painful for Ukraine at a time when people are trying to have a good time and trying to celebrate New Year's as much as they can in, in the current circumstances, which is a full-fledged war in Ukraine. Before Christmas, we asked you listeners to send in your thoughts as we head into the new year. Here's a selection of those messages. Hello, my name is Andrew and I'm an active duty United States Marine stationed in Okinawa, Japan. And since I started listening to Ukraine the latest back in March, uh, I've learned so much about the relationship between Ukraine and Russia. And I really appreciate your team's comprehensive and nonpartisan analysis of the conflict. And as an active duty Marine, I also really appreciate your team's military analysis as well. I find it incredibly valuable and interesting. So please keep up the hard work. I look forward to listening more in the future uh, and all the best to you and your team in the new year. Thank you again. Hi guys, it's Josh from Adelaide in Australia. Been following your podcast since near the beginning of the war. I just find it the most sort of independent and insightful and comprehensive coverage and consistent coverage that I've seen and very helpful to, to sort of get through this experience with people who are as interested as I am and it. it's such an injustice against humanity and in day-to-day life it's easy to just act as if it's not happening but it is happening every day and it's good to I listen to the podcast every day to remind me of it it's it's actually just a sickening thing but it's good to know that there's people that care and that the Ukrainians are doing everything they can to liberate themselves from the disgrace that is Russia and um, my grandpa's both fought in the second world war and for me it's i don't know i've just grown up with a huge appreciation for democracy and liberal values and um russia's just shitting all over it so it's yeah this is really important and um really applaud you guys for for what you're doing in your coverage and um i hope you keep doing it thank you Alistair Gibbons, 54, uh, based in Bristol, but originally from Liverpool. I mean, I don't read the Telegraph. My politics are left to centre. I'm not particularly establishment. I'm not a public schoolboy. But the Telegraph has some good journalists, and they do do some good coverage. So I was glad to see that you came up with this podcast, which I followed from almost the beginning, and has been my uh, daily go-to to find out what's happening in Ukraine. Because basically, it's just not being covered that well. And it's been very informative and it's been, frankly, it's been pretty good. So thanks for that and uh, keep doing what you're doing. It's a bit of a kind of uh, good luck, was it good night and good luck moment that you've created here, which I guess happens once in a generation for you journalists. So well done. Cheers. Hello, I'm John calling in from Sydney, Australia. I listen to your podcast each day when I walk the dog and due to time zones, it actually comes here every Tuesday to Saturday instead of Monday to Friday. 
When I listen to the podcast, it makes me feel like I'm living inside history, experiencing it as it progresses each day. And frankly, before the war, I probably wouldn't have been able to find Ukraine on the map. But now I know a lot more about European news and geography. I can also find many more countries when I play Worldle each day. That's Worldle with an L. Uh, Australia is quite disconnected from Europe. Most of our news focuses on the USA, China and the Pacific area. So this war has actually been an opportunity for me to expand my awareness of the world and to actually spend time looking at maps and learning about Europe and the ex-Soviet countries. I'm actually planning a a long-delayed holiday to Scandinavia in 2023. And frankly, I don't know which countries will be safe to visit next summer, but I certainly know one thing, and that's I won't be visiting St. Petersburg. So on behalf of your listeners from the other side of the world, I do thank you for keeping us so up to date on the war in Ukraine. And uh, my dog thanks you too for all of the walks. Cheers. Hello, my name is Thais. I am recording this from southern Minas Gerais, Brazil, from a, a grieving country because of the death of Pelé. But I really wanted to thank you for the inspiring, exceptional coverage of this full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia. It's really important for us here to, to have access to Ukraine the latest because we have been overwhelmed by the degree and the power of Russian disinformation here. So thank you. Secondly, I'd like to share with you the reason why, despite having no previous bond with Ukraine, today I am about to finish my second term of Ukrainian language. So this year was was really um, a journey from faraway Brazil into Ukrainian history, language, struggles. And I think it was for me easy to see what was happening there despite all the disinformation because we here have so many indigenous peoples fighting the same struggle, the same fight, the traditional use of their lands. And it's an unexpected link, but it's the one that drove my attention to to Ukraine. So thank you again and Slava Ukraini and glory to Pele. Ukraine the Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings you stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. 
You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Jaden Irving.